I've uh, got this watch for my birthday, and it's the uh, it's a Fitbit watch, and I've had it for since April, since my birthday in April, and um, you know. When I got it, I already had a GPS watch that I used in Iran, but this watch was a little different. It tracked a bunch of um, health things, of, you know, it counts how many calories I burn, and it tells me what my heart rate is, and, and how far I might travel in a day, walking or running and whatnot. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that this watch has been helpful to me in helping me... Uh, be healthier than I was back then, you know? And so I thank my wife and daughters who are giving it to me. But had I taken this watch, the watch didn't make me healthier. I took it out of the box, so that was good. That was a good step. And I put it on, I learned about it, and that was all good steps. But the watch doesn't magically make me healthy. Just by wearing the watch, I don't have lower blood pressure or stronger heart, better nutrition. No, I, ha I had to do other things too. I had to, uh, to add this to, you know, maybe eating better and, and then exercising more and putting it all together. So, so the watch was great and it's very helpful, but it wasn't enough. I had to put action behind it. We've been talking for two months about what a healthy church is. You know, we've, we've gone through Romans 12, and, and I'm going to try to keep on the back of the notes those, those characteristics of a healthy church. And I invite you, if you somehow, you know, forget what they're about, that you can now, you, know, you can go online, or we can even get you a recording of any of the sermons that we've had before. And I want you to be reminded of that. But understand, if you come here every Sunday and you read that list, that would be just like me saying, this watch is making me healthier. That would be just like me saying, you know, I study about good health, and that makes me healthier. You would all say, no, it, it doesn't. The watch doesn't make you healthier. Studying about it doesn't make you healthier. You actually have to do something. So all this talk about a healthy church, you know, it's kind of good, it's kind of safe, it, it, you know, we, we can listen to it because we haven't put any actions behind it. We haven't said, what would it actually take? A lot of people have no problem making attitude shifts, as long as attitude shifts don't actually result in actions. Everybody's great about theory, about what they would do, what they could do, what they should do. But what about doing it? If we're going to be a healthy church, we actually have to do things that healthy churches do. And when I was thinking about you know, this little mini-series we're going to do in November, it's, it's really that. It's this question of what do we need to do? What's the next step? What is the step that we need to do? You know, we have these steps back here, and there happen to be four of them, and, and no, I didn't plan it. But it's those four steps, right? They're, they're, they're going to be for the, the Christmas play. But those four steps can be a reminder to you that 
that we're just going to stay right here with knowledge about a healthy church, but never really go anywhere until we're willing to take the steps. And what are the steps? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. And the first step, you know, to illustrate this first step, I, I, I thought about this story that's from the Bible, and I love to get illustrations from the Bible in, rather than trying to get them from all over the place. And, and in the Bible, you have the story of Gideon. And Gideon is, he's, he's one of the judges. And the judges were those that God raised up to save the people of Israel when they were being oppressed. Of course, they were being oppressed because they were, were rebelling against God and, and worshiping other gods and following other religions. But nevertheless, they were oppressed. And so God would raise up a judge, a savior. And Gideon was one of them. And Gideon was the most unlikely of them. His story is, he's, you know, he's the least person in his family, and his family is the least person in his tribe, and his tribe is considered the least in Israel. And so much so that he is rather shocked when God is asking him to be the judge. He doesn't believe it. He does think it's possible. It's like, you must be mistaken. And God finally convinces him of it. He convinces him that, no, you're the guy. You're the guy. And so Gideon puts out the call. And you know what happens? Gideon gets the exact confirmation we would want if we weren't sure we were the guy or the girl or the woman or the man that God wanted. If we weren't really sure, what we would want is we would want some results. And so he puts out the call to these different tribes and you got to remember, back then, there is no nation of Israel. It's these tribes, and they're, they're kind of united around the covenant, but each tribe is somewhat independent, and they interpret the covenant in their own way. But he puts out the call to the tribes. Thousands come. At least 10,000 come. Gideon must have been like, all right, all right, all right. Wasn't sure about this, God. Even after you kind of convinced me, I still wasn't sure. But here's proof. Numbers. Because, you know, when God wants to show proof, he always shows numbers, right? No, he doesn't. But that's what we think. Numbers. Except, God wanted Gideon to understand it's not about numbers. It's about faith. And so what does he do? The first thing he says, he says, go tell all those thousands. He says, go tell all those thousands and thousands and thousands of people, men. He says, say, any of you guys who are like afraid and you really don't want to be here, but maybe you kind of feel guilty for being here or you think like, oh, I got my family and my, my, my farm and all this other thing. You guys can go home. So he does it. Thousands go home. He's still got a pretty good size army. And God says, still too many. Still too many. 
you, you got rid of the ones who were afraid. But I don't want anyone to go and fight just because they're not afraid. I want them to show faith. So he does another test. And as you know, the test seems somewhat arbitrary to us, but it's how they drank water out of the stream. And so from tens of thousands, he's got 300 left. 300. But it's 300 who are faithful. 300 who will follow Gideon, who will do what God says and do it without question. And you know the story of Gideon. I hope you know the story of Gideon. That when they go up against the enemy, the Midianites, 300, who knows how big the Midianites were? Huge, huge army. And they go and they have, they have a torch and they have a jar on the torch. And they have a sword, horns. They blow the horn, break the, the jar, torches show they race down the hill. I always wonder, what if this didn't work, right? This didn't work. You got 30, 40, 50,000 people, you know, men down there, some of them probably cooking, some of them, you know, getting ready to go to bed. And then they hear this little commotion, and then all of a sudden they see this guy running, running through their camp, and they're all looking like, oh, What's that guy doing? Why is he here? But it did work. The faithful few, the faithful few, routed, routed the army that was a thousand times their size. Amazing. Amazing. What was God doing? He was saying, look, I want to emphasize faith. I want to begin with those who have faith because I don't want people to begin to trust in their numbers. I don't want them to trust in their courage. I don't want them to trust in their abilities. I want them to be faithful, first and foremost. And so what is he doing? He's doing what's step one. He's finding the core. That word, finding the core, was kind of um, a phrase that came out of some church growth studies and church revitalization studies, and it's just a phrase that came up. You could talk about it in a lot of different ways. You could talk about it not just, say, finding the core, but, you know, but, but you know, finding that, that base, you know, finding that, those, that solid ground, those that, that you know are, are committed, finding those people. Because if you're going to, to, to build something, if something is going to grow, you want to start from the healthiest parts and grow from the healthiest parts. It's kind of like, it's kind of like cells, human cells. Like, like if, if someone said, um, you know, I have this way that we can replicate human cells and, you know, we can implant them in your body and we can make you healthier. And you're like, oh, great. And 
they say, well, we're going to take some cells from you. And so they take some cells, and then they go, you know, these cells are healthy. These cells have cancer. Um, we don't really care. We're going to duplicate both of them. You'd be like, what? You're going to be healthy. I don't want you duplicating the unhealthiest cells in my body and letting them spread. I want you to find the healthiest ones. Duplicate those. Let them spread. That's the idea of the, of the core, of finding the core. If, if you have a, a sports team and you're trying to win, you're trying to be competitive, you know, part of the practices and training is to try to find out who, who, are, the, who are the healthy ones. Who are the ones that aren't just the best players, but the ones that are committed to the team and they're going to do what it takes for the team to win? Finding the core. However you want to think about whatever image you want to have, understand that that's where being a healthy church begins. It's finding that base, that core, and building from there. And let me let you just, you know, let you know that in the church sometimes, you often have different kinds of groups. You have the group that talks a healthy Christianity. They will tell you all the time what you should do and what you shouldn't do. They're, they're able to look at other people and say, those people, if only they would do this, if only they would do that. And you know what? They're right. They're right. Except they don't do anything. They know what should be done. They can talk it. They could teach it. They could do a presentation on it. They could counsel people. In fact, sometimes they do. They'll counsel someone. You, you know what you really need? You need to connect with a strong Christian community like church and, and be a church. That's what you need. They'll tell them that. And then they don't do it. There's, there's that group. And then there's the other group that doesn't really understand. They don't understand anything. But they're just driven to be doers. They just do whatever. And on one hand, you kind of love them when you're in leadership because they just do things. But on another hand, it's kind of dangerous because if they don't really understand why they're doing what they do, what's going to stop them from just doing something that's wrong? And so you kind of want that group that, that gets it, that understands and does doesn't just talk, doesn't just think, but puts action. That's the healthy core. You see, in so many times when we think like the world, what we want is we want to start with a large group, and then we want to, you know, say, let's get this large group together, and then, and then hey, we'll just make it happen from there. And so a lot of times when a church is, is, is uh, doing a church plant and they're, they're trying to grow, they often target Easter Sunday. And the reason they target Easter Sunday is because they know a lot of people come to church on Easter and they know it's easy to invite people to come on Easter. And so they do that and they hope that that's going to create momentum. And there's a sense where that's not wrong. It's what Jesus did. Jesus could draw crowds. We talk about Jesus mania. You know, I've talked about this before. 
about how it's like Beatlemania. You know, you, you, you know, those of you who are old enough, I only saw it in news, you know, historical footage of, of the Beatles coming to America. But some of you witnessed it live. And, and you know, you remember how it was, just these, these, you know, these teenage girls pressed up against this fence at the airport, you know, screaming with signs and crying and fainting and all of this. And then they would, they would go to an, another city and the same thing would happen. This is, this is what Jesus could do. The Bible tells us about how, how thousands would run from one place to another place. If they heard Jesus was going to the other side of the Galilee, boom, they're running, they're over there. And he could draw crowds. But Jesus never trusted crowds. He knew they were there to see the miracle. So they knew that some of them were there because he was standing up against the status quo. He knew some of them came because, because it made them feel better and it got them out of that routine, mundane life. He knew some came because they, they were just hearing these sayings that they had never heard before. But then Jesus would say something. Then Jesus would give a teaching. And it's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. But he would, he would say something like, you know, if you want to follow me, you need to sell everything and give it to the poor. Or he would say, you know, if you really want to follow me, you need to hate your father and hate your mother. He would say, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. He would say, leave your livelihood and everything you trust. Leave the family that supports you and follow me. Of course, when he would say things like that, the crowds would go away. And that's because even though Jesus could draw crowds, it wasn't about the crowd. He was looking for the faithful few. In fact, that group that radically changes the world, it's just about 120 that gather there in Jerusalem after Jesus has ascended to heaven. Think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, this great teacher who did legitimate miracles. He wasn't this, one of these con men doing you know, these fake things. He was doing legitimate miracles. This Jesus, after three years, he's got 120. And most of them are there because they're related to him or they had seen him resurrected. At the cross, he doesn't even have 120. He's got his mom, some of the women, one apostle. It's the faithful few. That's where it started. But it didn't end there, of course. As we know, those faithful few radically changed the world. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves today is, you know, what is, what is the core? 
What is the healthy core of Wiley Baptist Church? Well, the text we're going to look at is from Luke. And here Jesus has been invited to one of the ruling Pharisees' house. And he's having dinner there. And you have to know, Jesus was popular among the Pharisees. The Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, but for a different reason from the Sadducees. The Sadducees were threatened because he was a threat to the status quo. The Sadducees were wealthy. The Sadducees had power. The last thing they wanted was for anything to change. They were perfectly okay with the Roman Empire being in control of their land because they were benefiting. The Pharisees were also benefiting, but the Pharisees were not happy. The Pharisees believed that this was an affront to God, that Gentiles would be in charge of God's holy city and his promised land. It bugged them. And when they would hear Jesus teach, Jesus taught like no other. And they knew that their hearts were, were kind of on the same page. In fact, I've, I've used this analogy before, but it's when they saw Jesus, they saw superstar. They saw this is the real Messiah. This guy can, can heal. This guy can speak. He's charismatic. People will follow him. He could raise up an army in a second. This is the guy. We'll follow him too. But what bugged them about Jesus is that Jesus wouldn't do what they wanted him to do the way they wanted him to do it. I, I went to a high school where our sports teams weren't very good. And I can imagine if, if this seven-foot you know, guy comes to our school, transfers into our school, and, and we see him at the park, and, and he's, he's dribbling the basketball and passing it like, like he's just a guard, and, and he's, he's dunking, and he's shooting three-pointers, and, and he's awesome. And so we're like, oh, man, are you going to play basketball for us? Oh, no. I just, I just like to do it for fun. And I can imagine, as our team was being throttled again, and we see him in the stands with a little pom-pom cheering. And then we look at our team and we look at him. At some point in time, we're going to get really upset at him because he's our savior and he won't save us the way we want to be saved. That's how the Pharisees were. They were interested in Jesus. They weren't just trying to trick him to trick him. They were trying to, and sometimes, force him to step forward and be the Savior, be the Messiah. And so here at this house, he's having dinner, and of course, Jesus uses these opportunities to teach. And he's, so he says, in verse 12 of chapter 14, he said, also to the man who had invited him, when you give, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Interesting. Not the way you attract friends and influence people. Here he is in this banquet of very powerful and wealthy people. And he's basically saying, none of you are going to be in the kingdom. Not if you continue on the path that you're on. So what does this text tell us? It tells us a lot. It tells us who Jesus is after. And when I think about what the core of a healthy church is, I think about it's those who Jesus is after. Those who, who Jesus says, I will invest in these. And so the first thing is what he says there in the beginning when he's talking to his host, the man who invited him. He said, don't invite people who, who can repay you because they will. And you're really just playing this game. You're playing the world's game. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You give me a present, I'll give you a present. I help you, you help me. The world does that. Anybody can do that. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's okay. It's kind of how the world goes around. It's how business works. But it's not the kingdom. Understand the difference. Just because it's not the kingdom doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's great to do something and out of gratitude want to do something in response. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not the kingdom. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is when you help those who you know cannot help you. That's the kingdom. The core of a healthy church is from those who love unconditionally, expecting nothing in return. And how are you going to know you love unconditionally when every time you do love, it always has conditions? Or at least the possibility of conditions. You see, when I help somebody who has no possibility of helping me, it can truly be unconditional. There is no condition. There's not even the possibility of a condition. If a billionaire's car broke down across the street here, you know, I would like to think I would help him 
as much as I would help some homeless person who can't help me, but I ain't gonna lie to you. There's something in my head thinking, you know, help the billionaire, maybe he becomes a Christian, joins our church. Billion, what's 10% of a billion if he tithes? I mean, that's what we think. It's hard not to. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't just help those who can help you. That's fine. That's what the world does. Help those who cannot help you, who cannot give back to you. Help them. That's where the core is. Because the true blessing that comes from helping is not what you receive. And again, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you feeling good about it. But that can't be the reason that you help. It doesn't mean that you can't receive an honor for it. You might. But it can't be the reason that you do it. And the only way to ensure that is to, be, is to make sure that along the way you are helping people that cannot help you, that cannot honor you, that might not even know you did it. Do you understand how powerful, how powerful the core of a church would be if it was full of people who were just like that? Who weren't here about what I get out of it, what I like, what I want. But instead it's about, no, it's about giving. It's about helping. It's about serving. It's powerful. Jesus starts there, and, and then this guy kind of misunderstands him. He kind of misunderstands when Jesus talks about the resurrection of the just, and, and the guy immediately just goes to this kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God, and he says, oh, awesome, everybody who gets to eat bread at the kingdom of God. couple problems with this that Jesus immediately points out. First of all, He's, he's questioning the guy's motivation. He's saying, you only want to go to the kingdom because you're going to get to eat there. You're not in the kingdom for the right reasons. You're in the kingdom for what you get out of it. And we have a modern version of this. This is how we talk about Christianity. We talk about Christianity primarily in terms of what we get out of Christianity. I get eternal life with God. I get a place in heaven. I get joy. I get peace. I get, I get, I get. And again, all those things are true and there's nothing wrong with them. But when that's the focus, Jesus is trying to help him understand, when that's the focus, you're not really part of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is made up of people who aren't focused on what they get out of it. The healthy core is those who are there because they're saying, okay, God, why am I here? Why did you make me this way? Why did you save me? Give me my job. Put me out there to do it. 
we've, we've been duped. Too many American Christians, we have, been, we have been duped, we've been sucked into this individualistic, personalized Christianity that says it's all about you and your life and that's all that matters. And we think that makes us healthy Christians. Why do you read your Bible? So I can be a better person. Why do you want to be a better person? Oh, I don't really know. I've not really asked that question. Why do you come to church? So I can be closer to God. Why do you want to be closer to God? I don't know. Maybe he'll like me more. Maybe I'll be holier. Notice how it all ends with you. If that's the kind of Christianity. How do I know this? Because it's what I was raised on. It's what I believed. And then I realized, no, it's wrong. God didn't save me so that he could collect me to his kingdom. He saved me so that I would be part of his kingdom and so that I would help advance his kingdom in this world. That's why. Those who love unconditionally, those who don't focus on the rewards. But there's another aspect to it that this guy was missing. And, and, and he was saying that what Jesus was trying to help him understand is that, in a sense, the kingdom is now. It's right here. Yes, there is a, a future sense of the kingdom. That's the kingdom to come. But the kingdom is right here. Wherever God reigns, it is the kingdom. And see, God reigns when our hearts are changed, when we're transformed, when we become more like Jesus, when we love in ways that we could never have loved before. And when we do that together, as a healthy core of a healthy church, when we do that, the church becomes a signpost to the world. This is what God can do. The church becomes an outpost in enemy territory that says, come, run here, come here, and find what you cannot find anywhere else. It's right here. It's right now. You see, we don't have to think about the resurrection. We don't have to think about when we will be resurrected or, or the kingdom that's to come. We don't have to think about that because that's settled. It's assured. If you had faith in Jesus Christ, it is yours. It is waiting for you. So now we can focus right here, right now. It's not a choice. It's a matter of focus. And then we look at this story of these guys, these people who are invited to this party and, and so many make excuses of why they cannot come. And those who... Who, who are the ones who do come? And it's the poor and the lame and the blind, the crippled. This is what this is telling me. Who is Jesus after? Jesus is after people who are not trusting in their own power, their own education, their own experience, their own wealth, but he is trusting in broken people, humble 
people. That's who he's trusting in. That's who he wants to bring together as the core. That's not to say that if you are rich and powerful, you cannot be broken and humble. It's just that it's much more difficult. In fact, the ones who have the best opportunity to display, to display true humility are those who have power. You see, if I don't have any power, I can claim to be humble, but I'm not really humble. I'm just weak. But if I have power, and I willingly serve, and I willingly set it aside so that I might be humble, oh, that's true humility. So the core of this healthy church, the ones who come to the kingdom, the ones who come to the banquet, they're the broken. They're the humble. And they don't trust in their personal wealth. They trust in God alone. To trust in anything other than God is idolatry. Trusting in your bank accounts, trusting in your investments, trusting in your experience, trusting in your plans, trusting in your career, your own hopes, your own personal abilities, trusting in that above trusting God is a form of idolatry, which means I need to repent because I do it. And I'm pretty sure if you're honest, you do it too. We want to trust in our reputation. We want to trust in our position of authority. We want to even sometimes trust in our relationships. And again, there's nothing wrong with most of those things. There's nothing wrong with, with having them in your life. But when they become the, the main thing that you trust in, rather than trusting in God, you can't really be part of the core. Because there's always going to be something that pulls you out. And it goes back to this question, why did God bless you with those things? Why did he bless you with, with that wealth? Why did he bless you with that experience and that education and that training? Why did he bless you with that family and those relationships? Why did he do it? Just so that you could have a happy life? Is that why? Because if so, why did it cost him the death of Jesus Christ? No. He blesses us with these things so that we can give them away. That's why. We give away our knowledge. We give away our experience. We allow God to, to use our resources, to use our gifts, to even use our relationships. We give them away. You might go, oh, you know, I'm not a wealthy person. Well, but you know stuff. Do you give it away? You just keep it to yourself. Paul wrote about that in 2 Timothy. He told Timothy, you know, entrust these teachings that I've taught you to 
you know, to trustworthy men who will then teach others. Give it away. Give it away. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much time you have. When I was debating over whether to go to seminary, one of the, one of the thoughts that got me was when I was reading through the seminary catalog, one of the professors said, if I only had three years to live, if God told me I have three years to live, he said, I would spend two years training and one year serving. Because if I would train for two years, my one year service would be so much more powerful. It doesn't matter how much time we have. What are we doing with the time that we have? Whatever time we have left, are we pouring it into others? And when we pour into others, it's not to make them like me or to make them like you. I think that's why the younger generation stops listening. I think they stop listening because they think we're just trying to make, make them like us. No, it's to help them be more like Jesus and to be whatever Jesus will be in their life in the culture that they have to live in, which is different from the culture that you grew up in. And we're deathly afraid of that. We're afraid of what that might mean if we just say, give them Jesus and trust that Jesus and his spirit will enable them to live faithfully in the culture that they're going to be in. With whatever time we have left, with whatever we have, we pour it into others. When we do this, it comes from living that surrendered life, and, and in some ways it's exciting, but in some ways it's scary because we don't know where it leads. We don't know where it will take us. We don't even know what will happen to us along the way. Not whether we'll live or die, but how will we be changed? That's what happens when we trust in God alone. These opportunities come up everywhere. If you would have told me when I was a young man that, that someday I would go to Kenya and be teaching Greek to a bunch of Kenyan students, I would have thought, you're crazy. If, if you would have told me that someday I would be you know, riding in the back of a truck going up these mountain roads to Haiti, to a village up in Haiti to, to disciple and teach, teach a group of Haitian pastors about the Trinity. I'd have thought, you're crazy. That was never anywhere in my plans. I had other plans. At this time, I would be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and we would have won five Super Bowls. That was my plan. But that wasn't his plan. We need the core. We need those who are willing to love unconditionally. We need those who, who know that the kingdom of God is right here, right now. And we need to advance it. We need those who, who, who say, I will not 
trust in my wealth and trust in my power and my abilities and even be limited by my own perceived weaknesses, but I will trust in God alone. We know we need those who are broken and humble before God. Healthy churches must grow from a healthy core. And who is the healthy core? Those committed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom above all, specifically advancing the kingdom in this church. We have to build from health to become healthy. People in the core, they don't make excuses. They don't even give sometimes valid reasons. They don't say, I just bought a field or I just got married. They say, what does it take? Let's come together. Let's be the body of Christ and let's advance the kingdom. Can't say I'm too old, I'm too young, I don't have any skills, I have too many skills, I have no training, I don't know enough, I'm too busy. Are we part of the core? I'll give you four really simple things, and I'm not even going to elaborate on them. Because a lot of people go like, okay, I get this in a general idea, but what are you talking about specifically? Well, I could tell you a thousand things specifically, but let me just tell you four. Because ultimately, being part of the core is, is not signing some paper that says I'm part of the core. It's not coming to me and say, I'm part of the core. It's this, it's doing. So here's four things. Pray like you're part of the core. Pray for this church. Pray for the advancing of the kingdom through this church. Second, give like you're part of the core. Give so that this church might advance the kingdom. Third, show up like you're part of the core. Be here with us. Fellowship with us. Get to know us. Strengthen our binds. And fourth, invite people here like you're part of the core. You want to be part of the core? A lot of different ways. Four simple ways. Four simple ways that we all can do. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and we just ask that you would help us to think on your plan, your plan for all of creation, your plan for your kingdom. And God, your plan for this church. And God, even though we don't know all the details, we know enough to know the things we can do even now to help Wildlife Baptist Church just be a church that is pleasing to you in every way. And God, I pray that you would help us to commit to that today. And those, God, who came here already committed to that, I pray that you would encourage them. Continue to let them know that there are a faithful few and maybe even a few more than they might think. And God, that together we would advance your kingdom wherever you would lead us. 
ask all this in your name. Amen. Can I ask the deacons to come forward and the other servers who come with the deacons. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper as our time of reflection. Um, as always, we want to prepare our hearts. We do not police the table here. If you are a Christian, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are invited to come and I mean, to participate. Um, if you're not, we ask that you would respect our beliefs here and that you, you would refrain from participating. We also ask that you would do as the Bible tells us to do, which is to examine our hearts. And we examine our hearts not simply to confess sin we might have, but we examine our hearts to consider, is there anything in our lives that has come between us and someone else in this church? That if we take of the Lord's Supper without reconciling, or at least moving in the direction of reconciliation, we actually dishonor this table, and we dishonor the body of Christ, and we dishonor the blood of Christ. And so I invite you now to bow your heads and spend some time in prayer. And maybe this isn't the morning that you go make everything right with your brothers and sisters, but this is the morning that you commit to doing it.